This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks for sticking me in your ear. I just watched the most fascinating documentary that was produced for the BBC about exorcisms. One particular exorcist, Padre Manuel from Argentina, turns out to be a very controversial figure. We're about to uh, learn more about him and the whole practice of exorcisms with Andrew Gold. Andrew's a journalist, documentary maker, and podcast host of a, a terrific podcast called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. He speaks five languages and documents the world's strangest and most controversial people from true crime and paranormal to science and politics. Hey, Andrew, welcome. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good to hear your your voice. Can I just ask, is that what your intro, is that is that you? It's not you, is it? Is, that, is it that famous trailer guy? Not the famous trailer guy, but just the hired hand who has a much better voice than I do. And, and yeah, not, not me. What a, what a voice. You've got a lovely voice as well. It sounds quite exotic to me. Exo- well, yes, we're, uh, we're in the old colony, right? Canada. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. Tell, us, tell my listeners a little bit about On the Edge. Sure. On the Edge with Andrew Gold is, well, I was going to call it On the Fringe initially because it's about fringe stuff. So it's very similar in that sense to yours. Uh, Lots of interviews and episodes with strange, weird people who you might not encounter every day. I didn't go with the word fringe in the end because I thought that people that I invite onto the show might might find it offensive. They might be offended by being considered a fringe personality because it, it can have a negative connotation. So edge, I thought was better because people like being edgy. Uh, so it can be, you know, psychopaths and narcissists and people like that I'll have on the show. I love doing them. Quite famous faces like Amanda Knox and some some British celebrities that I don't know how famous they are in, in, in Canada, but Richard Dawkins, for example, yeah. and then lots about cults and uh, ideologies. Sometimes it gets a bit political as well about both sides um so that's really what it is three times a week me interviewing people and a a cannibal thrown in for good measure man well cannibal he used a different word and i can't remember what it what it is but because he was forced to eat people rather than um chose to i think he said that cannibal again it, it means you know, a culture of eating people. Whereas he was one of those people, and I'm sure your listeners will be aware of that story of the Uruguayan uh, plane crash. It was a rugby team. People often think it's a soccer or football team, but it was a rugby team. Um, and they had never, um, they'd never seen snow before. That's the thing that I didn't even realize about it. So they were just in like their t-shirts and stuff on a plane from Chile, no, sorry, from Uruguay to Chile. Uh, and they crashed in the Andes on the border of Argentina and Chile. And they were ages away from anywhere else. It was the middle of winter, blizzards and stuff. And they're in like 
socks and t-shirts and they had to survive for I, I think it was something like 71 days i can't remember exactly and obviously a lot of people died in the crash and their bodies were eaten because it was the only thing there they also couldn't drink because you can't drink the snow uh because you get frostbite in your mouth so you have to put the snow in these wine bottles that they had and uh melt the wine bottles in the snow but it was like minus whatever you know degrees so it took all day for one drop to melt and they would just sort of share that drop between them all so it was it was it was hell um you know on earth but uh, he survived the guy i spoke to so you've produced uh documentaries for bbc hbo why podcasting well well that it's it, i suppose it's it's a little bit political but it's just what happens and i don't i don't have a particularly um strong opinion about about why it is but it's just what happened which was that while i was uh after the exorcism film for the bbc uh, and i and i didn't make that with them i made it first because they weren't interested in initially in any of my ideas and then i went and made it with a friend of mine called david who's a great director and he films really beautifully um, and i was living in argentina at the time that's where this uh, padre was padre manuel the exorcist um, and we sold it to the BBC afterwards. It took about two years of badgering them to, to sell it. And after that, I had many, many meetings with them and with different production companies around the UK. And they said, um, look, we love your ideas. It was all about weird, strange things around the world. Again, like your podcast kind of thing. But um, they didn't want a white man to be on the screen. This was right at a time when I suppose some of the critical race theory ideas were, uh, you know, being spread in, you know, in society. And um, I at first sort of understood that as like, okay, well, here I am, I'll make a sacrifice for the team. And I felt quite, you know, that was a selfish thing. Like I felt I could, you know, I told everyone like, hey, I'm doing this, but I'm making a sacrifice. I thought I was a great guy. But after a few years, uh, I found it very frustrating and, and woe is me. And I was very upset and angry. And so I thought, look, I've got all these um, people I want to talk to, got all these interviewees and stuff uh, lined up for documentaries. I'm not going to be able to make them, but I can just sit at home and pop a camera on and have the same conversations I would have had for a documentary that takes, you know, three months or a year to make and do it in an hour and get it out to people. And luckily it's sort of uh, taken off, I suppose. It has, it has really taken off. So let's talk about The Battle for Young Minds. This is the documentary you produced for the BBC, or not for the BBC, but they later uh, purchased it. And uh, tell us about how you first encountered uh, Padre Manuel Acuna. Yeah, Manuel Acuna. So Manuel, um, I was living in Argentina. I had, a, as you mentioned at the beginning, and I can't go five minutes without showing off about it, is that uh, I learned some languages. And I think if you learn a language, you don't often get a chance to show off about it. You don't get, often get a chance to use it. So you have to just um, tell everyone you meet that you've learned the languages because, you know, you put so much work into it, I suppose. Five of them. So... <laughs> You know, yeah. So I guess um, I'd lived in France and place in Colombia, and then I moved to Argentina and I thought, what's what's here for me to make something journalistic? And I kept seeing on TV, whenever I turned the TV on there, or whenever I was in a taxi and listening to the radio, I kept hearing the voice of Padre Manuel. And he would be telling people, um, make sure for this Halloween that you have a, a pumpkin and some olive oil on your head or just, just mad things often involving kitchen ingredients. Um, and that will stop you from getting breast cancer or whatever it might be, or it will ward off demons and those kinds of things. So I thought this is quite interesting because for a documentary, obviously there's the aesthetic of, um, you know, an exorcism. It's pretty 
you know, outrageous. So that's cool. But you always look for something that's also quite profound. And I figured, okay, well, who are these people getting the exorcisms? What can we find out about them? Uh, what kind of mental illnesses might they suffer from? And then is this exorcist, you know, uh, I, I don't believe in the paranormal myself, although I'm, I, you know, very open to people being open to it. Um, but is he a fraud or is he someone who believes in his powers? So eventually I got in touch with him and I said, uh, I'd love to make a film with you. Can I come and follow you around for a few months? And he agreed because he was, he was very excited. I mentioned the name, the BBC, of course, uh, despite not having any guarantees. I just said, and I, and I explained that to him as well. And he was just very excited and thought we would go and show off his church. So you, um, the first exorcism that's featured in the documentary is, I believe her name is Natalia. This is a, a, yes. a poor suburb of Buenos Aires. And, and um, tell us about, you know, kind of walk us through what that was like witnessing and even participating in this exorcism mm -hmm. of Natalia. Yeah, that was difficult. Um, I'd seen a lot of that stuff. And I, you know, I, again, I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will relate to this you watch a lot of weird stuff from different places and there's that sort of exoticism there's a distance and so you often watch if you see something about exorcism it tends to be a vice uh, as in vice media it tends to be one of their videos something crazy in mexico it's an old lady and you do sort of you don't mean to but you sort of dehumanize the person to an extent you forget they're real so it's funny and you watch it and you don't understand the language maybe there's subtitles who knows and you're just like god look at these ridiculous people who believe ridiculous things when you're there you've already met natalia behind off camera and you've had a nice chat with her and she's somebody who's suffering badly with what she calls intrusive thoughts and you know things that we might you know uh, analyze and, and believe are like um obsessive compulsive disorder schizophrenia uh i wouldn't exactly know but we would send her to a psychiatrist perhaps or a psychologist and see what to do with her um she had no other recourse she had nowhere else to go except for this exorcism exorcist and then you see her beneath you know i saw her beneath my feet and i'm ringing the bells because i wanted to participate and all i could think at that moment we've got the cameras on me and she's just screaming and screaming all i could think was how inappropriate it was that i was just like while this woman was in so much pain and in such a vulnerable moment that I was just standing over her head ringing a bell like an idiot. Uh, because part of taking part in that, I suppose, is, is mocking a little bit. Like I'm doing this silly thing because I'm mocking and I felt really bad. And so from that moment, we decided, okay, I'm not going to take part in any more of these exorcisms. I'm just going to watch from the sidelines and sort of ask, you know, have you considered going to a psychologist or something? like that. So yeah, it was it was difficult and weird and strange. Initially, you had some casual conversations with uh, Padre Acuna and and he was, mm. you know, open to talk talking to you. Uh, mm. and what were your initial impressions of him because I know at one point he he stated that he believed in vampires. Mm -hmm. uh, what else yeah. what else did you glean from your conversations with Padre Acuna? Well, there's this sort of, you know, unfair prejudices I had, I suppose, because there's like the physiognomy of a person's face and he has the sort of weaselly face, uh, big cheeks and stuff. And he just looked villainous to me. And I tried to discount that because that's unfair. Uh, he was clearly really involved, invested in his whole 
his look. He had a big marketing team and a YouTube team and all those kinds of things. He relied heavily on the propaganda and marketing from the film, The Exorcist. He played the music from it at his masses, um, the Tubular Bells uh, theme. He had posters from the movie with his face superimposed over that of The Exorcist. So this was clearly somebody in my mind who was vain, pompous, uh, and potentially abusive. But like I say, you don't want to go into a film or documentary with those kinds of biases. So I tried as much as possible to forget that and get to meet this guy. With regards to the stuff about vampires and all of that, that I suppose was my tongue-in-cheek stuff. I grew up watching Louis Theroux, who's a popular British documentary maker, uh, sort of maybe our Michael Moore to an extent, but he's not, not as political. But he very subtly mocks the people he's talking to uh, if they seem like evil people, you know. Um, and I suppose that was me doing that. And maybe it's something I wouldn't do now because if I made a new film now, I might not do that now. I'd feel a bit bad about it. I'm not sure. But that was my way of just seeing how far I could push him. What did Was there anything he didn't believe in? I'm all for belief in different things. That's fantastic and interesting. And it makes the world interesting, this plurality of thought and opinion. But then I'm like, okay, so vampires? Like, yeah, yeah, we've seen those. And I just felt like anything I said he had to sort of play to the gallery and and uh, say that he's seen levitation, he's seen heads turn green, he's seen them spin round, uh, all sorts of mad, crazy things. And he was so confident. And I thought, okay, well, he's telling me this. And, you know, we're going to watch some of these exorcisms in real life. And what if they don't work? But they always work. And he knows that. So he's very confident. So tell me about his, uh, how do we re refer to these uh, people, clients? Um, mm -hmm. that come to see him. I think so. Yeah. In the documentary, they're all sort of young, impressionable teenage girls. Did you see any clients that weren't young teenage girls? No, no. The, except in the, in the big mass that he has, he has a big one every month where they are playing the music. And, and that was where like at the end, he ends up screaming at me at one of his masses. But he has, you know, I think I'm right in saying, you know, 10,000 or so people there it might just be in the thousands but the roads outside the streets are closed off there are just people and they're just falling over themselves so that's where you do get men women children every now and then it's like you turn around oh there's another one and they're on the floor convulsing uh and someone will come over and spray them with some holy water and they'll get better and so they're sort of almost mini exorcisms you know these little moments that happen in the crowd but in terms of the big exorcisms which is like people coming in and saying i have a problem this is related to uh pushes and urges i'm getting and all sorts of things that a demon is doing to me the the three women that i was sort of looking into were all young women uh, and my impression is that he mostly deals with young women and i went and asked the psychiatrist of one of the women who is now his assistant uh her name is paula and he he did a big exorcism on her and then she left her family and has stayed uh, with him, sleeps upstairs in the church with him, goes on holidays uh, with him. I went to see her former psychiatrist and he said that people are always getting, you know, uh, young women are always getting sort of stolen by exorcists and shamans and other kinds of uh, magic people. And it's a particularly vulnerable stage, adolescence, and apparently particularly for women. I, I don't know how accurate that really is. Anecdotally, it sounds about right to me. That might be a societal thing more than a biological thing. That might be about the pressures put on women, young women in particular, more than men. I'm not sure. 
Um, but but that seems to be it, and it's like a quick fix. This idea that okay, psychiatry might be very expensive and very long, and five, ten, twenty years, you might never see results. I mean, a lot of us have had experiences with therapists and psychiatrists, and they're not foolproof. Whereas this is a guy saying, "Hey, I can fix you. Give me one hour, and I'll do it." And it's it's very tempting, right? And and in each of these three cases, uh, Paula, who is his assistant. Uh, Natalia and Candela, who is uh, this young 17-year-old who I believe was suffering from bulimia and anorexia and, and was you know, self-harming, cutting herself and so forth. Uh, they did seem to get better. The question is, was it temporary or not? We'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss the uh, wonderful exorcism documentary on the BBC, The Battle for Young Minds, Andrew Gold, host of uh, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Andrew Gold, host of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. And how do we subscribe? Oh, yeah. Well, you just go to uh, Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, I imagine, and just type. Typing's a, it's not a, you know, you, we need better ways in, in podcasts, like in the middle to be like, zoom, and you're there. But uh, you've got to type on the edge. And you've probably got to add with Andrew Gold at the end, because I think there might be another on the edge podcast or something like that. And then you click subscribe and you listen to all the mad, crazy things. Oh, and YouTube as well. I should just add there's a YouTube channel, which is taking off now. Take it, and it didn't for a long time, and it suddenly is, and it seems to be videos about Scientology that people on YouTube want to watch. So that's all happening. Interesting. Okay, and and um, is it on the edge on YouTube as well? Yeah, on the edge with Andrew Gold. You got to type it all because, and also there's another Andrew Gold who was a singer. Yes. He died when he was 51. Oh, you know of him? I I was just hosting Coast to Coast uh, the other night, and I played uh, some Andrew Gold, and and people went crazy on Twitter. Oh, I can't believe you played Andrew Gold. So there you go. Wow, it's so funny. Like people don't know him, and then they do. And there's something about it's the weirdest thing when you share a name with someone. There was a comedian who did a whole thing about that in in the UK called Dave Gorman, and it was he found all the other Dave Gormans in the world, and I can't remember how it all went, but he did a show about it, and it was quite funny and interesting and profound. Uh, and it is a funny thing, you know, we look for, I think we do, we move to cities more often that start with the same letter as the first letter of our name, things like that. So when you do find someone with exactly the same name as you, although he and I are probably totally, totally different people with different experiences, we have that one thing in common that anybody who said the name Andrew Gold would be us. And so often I was, I've been mistaken for him on Twitter and then his widow um, still goes on his Twitter account, and uh, which is very moving. And she spoke uh, to me uh, one time and we had a little chat in the private messages and it was very sweet and, and, and endearing and, and nice to talk to her. So, um, and yeah, a lot of people don't, don't know of, um, his music, but really good stuff. There you go. It's yeah. There's an interesting psychology, as you say, when you share someone's name, I think there's a Richard Serrett who's a butcher in Yorkshire. That's about it for me. I don't Wow. <laughs> you should, you should meet him. I should reach out. Yes. Get some veal cutlets or something. Yeah. I'm going to York <laughs> next week, actually. So maybe ah. he's there. That's my ancestral home, but uh, I've not been. Wow. Uh, so back to The Battle for Young Minds, this uh, documentary that aired on BBC about exorcisms, Padre Manuel, a, a Kuna, a rather controversial figure. And uh, you really start to focus on this 
what seems like a, a rather inappropriate relationship he has with uh, Paula, who is his uh, uh, assistant, and she does she books the the, the clients to come to see uh, Padre Manuel for their exorcisms. Um, you discovered that that she had also undergone an exorcism under the name of was it Laura or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell me about yeah about Paula's case. So yeah, Paula and Laura always we'd say yeah Paula Laura. Um, she for some reason changed her name for one for the video i think her she go, her name is paula and she went by louder in the exorcists or the padre manuel's youtube version of the exorcism of her right so she changed her name to laura for her protection or something like that but now seems to be okay with just using her name as paula um and that that threw me off because i'd obviously seen this video before of her because it was one of his most famous ones probably his most famous it was el exorcismo de laura which you can find on youtube and there's loads of different versions of it you know loads and loads of views and it's just particularly mad it's particularly ostentatious and egregious and and uh she really screams and screams even more than usual of course there's none of the things he told me he has seen like levitation and her face turning green because that doesn't happen i don't think um but yeah she then stayed by his side and seemed to work with him her parents appear to have left the country she had schizophrenia and spent most of her adolescence in a psychiatric ward and then now seems better and happier although you know, who knows how she's really feeling every day. And the other clergy around the exorcist's church seemed to be a bit jealous. And I perhaps naively asked them a bit about it. And I was just getting into the idea of cults and things like that at the time. Now I'm talking cults all the time, and I think I wouldn't make the same mistake. But I guess because I saw them almost complaining because they were jealous that they, the Padre was spending a lot of time with Paola. The other rest of the team, the rest of the clergy, they were sort of whispering things to me and going like, yeah, he's with, he's with her all the time. They're, they're never apart, that kind of thing. So I, that gave me license to ask them more and to push a little bit like, well, is there some sort of relationship going on? Um, much later on, and I'm not sure I did actually ask that, but I just asked more than I would have, I would typically ask. Much later on, he sort of got wind of that and was very, very angry. But yeah, it does. I, th I think we were, you know, I haven't seen them having, you know, relations, so to speak. But I, I think we were sort of proven right that there's something going on there. It wouldn't be illegal. I mean, as far as I know, she's over 18. She was 19, I think, when she got there and she's like 21. He's like 60. But it's not very priestly of him to be exercising someone oh. and then, you know, doing that. And presuming, I presume he's taken a vow of celibacy. He's I, I don't know. Catholic. I, he's a he's a Lutheran. Oh, he's a Lutheran. Lutheran. Everyone thinks he's Catholic because it tends to be Catholic in Argentina. But he's Lutheran. I think he's really just a rogue guy who just says what he wants to say. Right. I was I was going to ask if this had been sanctioned by the church because you know the the Catholic Church has this whole order of <clears throat> exorcists and and uh, you know they acknowledge yeah. it's excuse me <clears throat> it's exceedingly rare. Uh, exorcism and and you have to go through this whole rigmarole you know uh, you have to be interviewed and and uh, so forth and here it's just you know mm -hmm. they, they advertise like practically a 1-800 number and you're in and and all of a sudden you've got strangers like Andrew Gold participating in your exorcism <laughs> it it, uh, it seems rather uh, un unusual um, so what do you think is happening with these these young girls is they they come to to see uh, Padre Manuel for an exorcism, are they 
genuine believers or are they basically, this is the last kick at the can for them? They've tried everything else? Is it desperation? Yeah, it's a bit of both. And 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 to your your point about Catholicism, I've got a, a lot of my listeners who've seen the film are believers themselves. And, and they just say they've seen the film and they think this guy is just a rogue you know, bad guy or whatever, uh, whereas they fully do, they fully believe it in Catholicism, and they say, you know, that's it. As you say, many interviews are had to, you have to be done first before it happens. So, you know, each to their own. Uh, these people, yeah, I've been trying to figure that out as well for years. I think about it quite often, and I think about whether the exorcist really believes in his powers. And they talk of, for example, psychics as either eyes open or eyes closed. And eyes open would suggest they they know that they're they're faking it and trying to get people's money. And eyes closed would reply, you know, imply they don't really know. Uh, they think they can do it. Whether they can or not is a, is a different matter. As for the people going, I guess it's that thing again. I mean, I remember, I remember being sent when I was younger to some sort of place for hay fever. You know, I had allergies and stuff, and it was some. It was a Chinese guy who's quite famous in London, I think, or at least in that world. And it cured whatever allergies I had. He got me to like hold up a bottle with one hand, and then he would push my other hand down. And and if it was easy to push my hand down, it meant that that was the thing I needed to take, or I was allergic to, it or whatever it was. And I think it's something similar to homeopathy. And I think it's scientifically not really uh, proven with empirical data, but it worked. And that's placebo. And did I believe it at the time? I sort of wanted to believe it. And maybe there's a space somewhere right at the back of my mind where I was going, well, hang on, this doesn't seem right, even when I was like 12. And I think that's how we all are with belief and faith and stuff. You know, we, we do believe in things that are maybe illogical and maybe we want to believe in them and maybe they're true. And we're sort of all over the place. So I guess it's that. And as you say, they have usually exhausted other avenues. And it's that thing of just like, okay, well, he can cure me in one day. That's much better than, you know, so Candela was saying, this is the young girl. She was 17. She was, uh, you know, suicidal and had bulimia and anorexia and all sorts of issues going on at school. Um, and they said they sent her to psychiatrists. They've tried everything. And this was the last avenue. And, you know, it actually seemed to work after the exorcism, she seemed to be better. So at first it looked like this was a good idea, you know? You mentioned the placebo effect, which is very, it's, it's very real, it's very powerful. Um, mm -hmm. So people might ask, okay, so what's the harm? And um, maybe the best way to sort of frame that is, is your discussion with uh, Candela's medical doctor, Dr. Guerin, I think his name is, you went to to speak with Dr. Garen, and I, I think you uh, you put that question to him. You know, okay, the placebo effect is is real. She seems better. Uh, what's the harm? What did he say? Yeah, he said what he said. I've got to admit, years later, you know, after it's out and I've watched it back, I'm not sure I'm entirely satisfied by his answer. His answer was, "It will come back, whether it's in a year, two years, or five years, uh, it will come back." And I remember, even at the time, feeling a little bit like. Okay, well, then she's back to square one, but she's not, it's not so bad. You know what, do it, have another exorcism in five years then, keep it going. Exorcism is, is very similar to um, Primal Scream, uh, which was really popular, I think in the eighties. And there was that John Lennon album uh, with Yoko Ono. And it's a lot of screaming out your childhood agony. That's the concept behind it. And there was a famous doctor, his name started with J, Dr. Just something, uh, who was all the rage back in those years. 
and eventually was just completely discredited and they found that there were no long-term benefits at all to Primal Scream. The, the issue with Primal Scream was that you're getting your emotions out, but you're not dealing with underlying issues. Uh, when people did both, it was beneficial. When people both did the primal screen, getting your emotions all out, you're screaming, you're having this real big moment, but you're also speaking to somebody who's bouncing back ideas with you about your unresolved issues, you can improve. So I think exorcism is a version of primal scream in that it, you know, it kicks into gear some sort of placebo effect. You feel much better. Uh, it's suggestion and hypnosis. Uh, you tell yourself you're good but you haven't actually dealt with the underlying issues. Now, things like schizophrenia, I mean, it's not like you can just deal with underlying issues by talking about it anyway. But a lot of people probably do see exorcists for issues that can be resolved through speaking about them and reframing them. That's it. You've got to reframe your issues and deal with them in different ways. Um, but again, what's the real problem? Well, there, there, was a, there was somebody who died. I think it was it Emily Rose, the, the exorcism. Of, I always forget her name. But there was someone who died she was dehydrated, didn't have water. So you could say, okay, well, as providing they give her water and they give her all these things, what's the problem? Well, I guess you could say, look, it's quite a, a scary thing to go through and it could give you some form of PTSD. We don't know what we're dealing with. It'd be better that they're in the hands of a therapist and it could put them off seeking that kind of reframing, whether it be through a therapist or a teacher or a friend, because they think they're just totally fine now. But the benefit when it's an adolescent, though, this is the thing, a lot of adolescents, this is what this Dr. Garin was explaining, go through these temporary uh, issues that they have. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who didn't have something bothering them when they were 16, 17, 18 years old. We all had various things that many of us, maybe it might have even gotten worse, but for many of us, when we got to adulthood, it got a little bit better. We became a little bit more self-assured and we didn't worry and stress so much. Teenage years are, are really, really difficult. Uh, if the placebo lasts from the exorcism, let's say you're 17 when you have the exorcism and the placebo lasts for six to 12 months and you feel better, you might've passed out the other side of that difficult adolescent stage and just had a better final year of your adolescence. So I can see how there is some positive to be had from exorcism. Andrew, we'll take another time. I'll come back and uh, I want to uh, talk some more about uh, Candela. You met her family and her father in particular had some very interesting comments. Back with more right after these. Welcome back, Welcome back. to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Andrew Gold, On the Edge with Andrew Gold, found wherever you get your podcast and uh, also on YouTube, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. We're talking about this BBC uh, documentary, The Battle for Young Minds, about uh, exorcist Pod Padre Manuel Acuna. And uh, one of his clients, uh, we mentioned her earlier, Candela, uh, that was suicidal and uh, suffering from bulimia or uh, anorexia. And uh, you went to meet her family and uh, you also witnessed uh, the exorcism, I believe, and, and um, her father um, had some very interesting things. It was a very powerful interview because he was a total non-believer. Tell us about your conversation with her father, I guess, and her mother, because, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this was, they were so thankful uh, that this exorcism had been, had been performed. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the hard part of making these documentaries because, you know, you only put an hour in, you only show an hour or 40 minutes in the end, I think our documentary is. Um, 
um, which I should say people can find. I mean, I don't care when people watch it because they don't pay me or anything, but if you're interested, it's on like YouTube, BBC, put exorcism in my name and you'll find it easily. Um, the hard part is you're, you know, you're spending days and weeks and months with these people and you're getting to know them and they're so sweet and nice, the parents, but they didn't know anything about, I don't know, it sounds patronizing to say, but they're, they're from the kind of place where you can't talk about mental illnesses and mental health and problems that you're having. It's just assumed it might be a demon. That's, that's it really. However, as you, as you, I think as you're, you're getting at, you know, they had, they had taken her to psychiatrists and stuff. They had tried everything. And again, I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that. Everybody knows somebody who's got a teenager who, who you try everything. It's just the saddest thing. Uh, it makes me sad just thinking about it now, but I think she's better, I should say, now. Uh, I haven't seen in a while, but about a year ago, I saw that she'd had a baby and stuff, and she was doing, seemed to be happy and doing well. I was on Instagram or something like that. Um, yeah, he said, I've, you know, I've, I've seen all this stuff happen in church before where people fall over themselves and foam at the mouth and nothing happens to me and I've never believed in it, but you know, watching her be exercised, his daughter, he thought, okay, yeah, so something's changed. I can see it right away in her. It, it was very sad, the whole thing. And it, it reminds me an exorcism, a little bit of a pregnancy, because you've got that same thing where you're expelling something. Obviously, with a pregnancy, you hope it's not a demon, but uh, you're expelling something from you and people are gathering around you. You're lying on the floor, you know, screaming and people are all around you trying to, you know, maneuver you in the right way and do things. And the dad was made to wait outside, just like an old fashioned pregnancy. And he's sort of waiting outside nervously. Uh, and then eventually he's allowed in and he just looks shocked he was just completely shell shocked uh because he was hearing the screams outside for an hour or so you know so yeah really really difficult thing for a parent to go through and then i'm sitting there thinking like what can i say what can i say to those people because i i i'd love to be like oh look at me i'm a clever guy from the west and what we do is we treat everyone with psychiatry well it doesn't it doesn't always work it just doesn't there's no magic formula so i have nothing to tell them except hopefully she'll get better with age as many people do they stabilize a bit and fortunately i, I think she has done right the mother talked about uh, her well you witnessed this she was talking in the third person uh candela that is um what was she saying? Screaming, uh, you'll never have her, mm -hmm. mine. Um, what else did you witness during that, that exorcism? Well, the first 20 minutes or so, I thought, hang on, this isn't going to work. So again, that's something we couldn't fully show with the documentary, apart from putting up a sign saying 20 minutes later. Uh, and I thought it wasn't going to work. And I thought, oh, this exorcist is going to have egg on his face now. He's got this whole camera crew, well, it's just me and my friend David, and it's not working. But he just has so much faith in his power, I guess. And he just pushed and pushed and pushed. He's nudging her and pushing her, screaming, spittle is going all over her face. She's got a, a blindfold from someone behind her is being pulled over her eyes. Uh, bells are being rung in her ear and her face. Water is being squirted on her. People are holding her legs and shaking her. It's a really quite, a, I mean, when we talked before, you know, what, what is the downside of going through an exorcism? I think that kind of, it's, it's really uh, a frightening thing for an adolescent to go through. And she sort of, she said she went into a kind of dream state and she imagined she was in some sort of prison and there was a skeleton there and all these sorts of things going on. And as you say, she's, well, first she started laughing demonically 
which was very scary, even if you don't believe in the paranormal, just to watch somebody doing that. She's sort of sideways laughing, um, and that was odd. And then uh, she started screaming and screaming, and then this sort of demonic voice coming out, just, you know, she's mine, she's mine, you can't have her. And again, I mean, I'm to me, that's, you know, in her mind, this is Satan or the demons saying she's mine. I'm, you know, but I suppose you could apply that to uh, anyone. I don't know. Maybe that's the psychiatrists in her mind. Maybe that's the illness that she has. Who knows exactly exactly what? But it was a, a real scary thing to witness. It, it, it turns out that um, Padre. Uh, Manuel has a, a bit of a temper, as we <laughs> as we discovered in the documentary. Um, your last, well, you you made several attempts to interview him one on one, and he always seemed to have an excuse. I mean, aside from the initial sort of casual conversations you had with him, uh, talk to me what happened at the very end when you, you finally got this one on one, and you're in this room with uh, uh, Padre uh, Manuel. Mm. Well, we weren't supposed to have that one on one. I thought. We'd come along for one for his big mass. He has this every month where the Exorcist music's playing and there's thousands of people and it's a big thing. And we thought, okay, we'll we'll make we're making this documentary. We'll sort of end it with that, and then I'll come back a few weeks later and just sort of maybe maybe push him about a few, a few of the things like you know why are you so close with this Paola woman? And I was going to wait till then. I wanted to get this mass filmed because it's quite a spectacle. So David and I got to the mass, and there's you know loads of people out there all you know people are falling on the floor and all that kind of things happening but he hadn't got to the stage yet so we sort of just sat or stood on the stage david and i waiting and waiting people are waiting getting impatient and then paula the the very woman that had been exercised by the padre and, and who had been by his side his assistant came to find us on the stage and said andrew can you come back here a moment so i thought okay this is interesting i don't know what's going to go on and as you say at this point the exorcist hadn't spoken to me for uh, two or three weeks, he'd been avoiding any chance to speak to him. I think it was partly because of some of the questions I'd asked, and maybe he thought, was I making fun of him with some of it? I'm not sure. Um, so I go backstage, and then he's there with a few of his guys, and he just says to me, uh, right, you've interviewed me, now I'm going to interview you. And he sort of ushers me into this small room or closet almost, it was so small, and said to David, my cameraman, no, no, you can't come in. Uh, we also had with us that night um, an, an, a young assistant called Demian, um, who was 18 or 19, and he wanted to come and help us do a shoot. So both of them are outside at this point, and I'm in the room. Um, and he suddenly became quite menacing. And he said, why have you been asking people in the congregation about my relationship with Paula? And I was just thought, I thought, oh God, you know, my heart just dropped in that moment. I'm not used to confrontation. I'm not very good at it. Um, and I said, oh, oh, well, you know, it's, I'm a journalist and it's something I should ask. You exercised her and now she's part of, you know, I was just trying to get away with sort of enough truth that it would help, but it didn't. He said, well, that's, that's all, you know, spiritual stuff, but why are you asking about mouth kisses? And I said, I haven't asked about mouth kisses. I didn't, I'd never even heard that expression. And then another guy who I'd interviewed before came forward and he said, you asked me about that. This guy was another journalist. Uh, for a tabloid sensationalist newspaper in um, in Argentina. And I believe, looking back, that he didn't want other journalists on his turf and that he made up a lie uh, to get us in trouble using something he had seen himself 
right. which was that the ex- exorcist had been kissing. Because you um, had offered to show, to play the tape back of that interview with Marco, I believe his name was. That's right. Prove that's right. I was happy to ask that question. We, yeah, yeah. I was, go on, sorry. Were you ever feeling physically, uh, like, were you feeling like you were in danger, that, that you were being threatened by Padre Manuel? Yeah, I, th- I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100%. I thought this is it. And I, d- I don't say that lightly. You know, I've gone and done and interviewed lots of weird and strange people. And that's the most I feared for my life. And I think the reason for that, and it doesn't really come across fully in the documentary, because we're so used to watching these kinds of documentaries. And you're like, okay, well, the whole BBC team is there. And the insurance person and a bouncer and a security guard and all these things. This was just me and like, David is a very diminutive figure. Um, you know, he's not gonna, he's a director of, you know, and what am I? I, I was uh, some idiot um, who didn't know what I was doing. And then there's an 18 year old kid we've got with us out after midnight in the dangerous suburbs, you know, an hour outside of Buenos Aires where people do go missing people do get killed for things much less than this. Um, and tens of thousands or, or at least thousands of supporters outside frothing at the mouth who would have done anything for him at that point. And even then he could have done away with us, hidden our bodies, who knows? And um, these, he could have said, oh God, they just got out of hand, my followers. I didn't do it. They they just did it. Uh, so that was really uh, the most scared I think I've been in my life. And I felt my legs go very much to jelly. And I remember thinking, even in that moment, like, what is the evolutionary cause of this? Because this doesn't help me run away because my legs are so weak right now. I'd be sort of stuck here. So I remember thinking that and we might die. And this is such a stupid way to die, like out in the middle of nowhere by an exorcist. Is that, you know, how my family going to think about that? You know, an exorcist killed him in the end. Um, in the end, he shouted at me for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. There was a bit of shoving getting very in my face. He had a very imposing friend who's a guy who did a, or he's, he's another sort of bishop guy with a purple cape and a staff like Jafar has, you know, that he holds in his hand all the time. And he had done another sort of exorcism on me at one point. He put his hand all over my head. He's a very imposing character. And is that yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. Scares the hell out of me. That guy that, do you know what I mean? He's got a scary face. Yes. Yes. So uh, yeah, that's very harrowing. Um, mm. What's his motive? Why is he? Why is uh, Padre Manuel doing this? Is he profiting from it? I, I suppose it's like why does any cult leader do this stuff? And there's all sorts of reasons he is profiting, um, and it's that very insidious way of profiting, um, insidious way because it's like no, no, we don't charge for the exorcism because they don't, they don't charge apparently for the exorcism. But anyone who's been to a church or any of these kinds of things, then you know the pressure that is on to donate. So. You don't charge, they don't charge, but afterwards a little donation happens behind closed doors. Um, and then you're taken through the gift shop. It's almost like a museum thing. And you go through the gift shop on your way out and you have to buy things. You're, you, everyone's watching you. They're standing around you. They've just saved your daughter's life in your mind. So you go and buy a tiny piece of, a tiny bottle of olive oil, like I say, that cures your breast cancer um, and all sorts of weird little trinkets and things, plastic bottles of water that are like extortionate by their standards. And this is a very poor area and they're giving him money and he's going off on holidays to Spain and places like that. And I tell you, for someone from that part of Argentina to be taking little holidays, taking Paula with him to Spain, doing a little tour, that is unheard of. That is, it's like you're talking thousands of dollars, right? 
the, these guys don't don't make that in a year. So it's money, it's power, it's narcissism, um, and he might believe partly there's that dissonance in his mind. You know, he might truly believe that he's doing God's work. I can't discount that. So it's a mix of things. Is there an update? Uh, do we know? Uh, is there are there any calls for an investigation into uh, Padre Manuel and his mission, if you will? We hoped when we made this film, you know, it's an ego thing, I suppose, as well. But you make a film, you put it out, and you think this will make a difference in the world, you know? Uh, what was going to happen? You know what? The Argentine police were going to watch this thing on YouTube and be like, let's investigate this guy. As far as I know, that hasn't happened. I'd like to think enough people have seen it now across various different channels. We believe it's at least a million, could be more than that. And a lot of those might be in Argentina, you would think, because they've got an interest in this particular exorcist. Maybe it's put some people off of seeing him. Maybe his numbers are dwindling. I went back a year later. Uh, the BBC sent me back. This was this was when they were actually taking the film. Maybe it was a year and a half later to get an update from some of the people who had been exercised, and they were all, you know, as bad as before or worse. Um, and his suggestion, the exorcist, was like, you know, Natalia said she went back quite a few times and the exorcist just ran out of patience and said, look, you know, you're obviously not doing it on your part, which again is very typical of cults. You see that a lot in Scientology. Uh, anything bad that happens to you is somehow your fault. You're not believing enough. You're not doing enough. So that was that. I did get a message on Instagram from somebody in Spain. So again, I mean, other side of the world from Argentina, uh, a woman, and this was a few weeks ago, so it's now been a couple of years, you know, so I was like, oh, you know, surprised. And, they, you know, they said, do you know, you know, Padre Manuel Acuna? And I said, yeah, yeah. And she said, well, you know, would you trust him? And I said, well, you know, I was being careful because the BBC scared me a lot about potential lawsuits and things like, particularly from people like, you know, uh, so I was, I've always been careful and I always thought, are they trying to catch me out, get me to say the wrong thing? Oh, look, this journalist was being biased the whole time. So I'm always very careful. And I say, look, if you trust this person, then you do. I personally wouldn't go to him for whatever. And I don't believe in this stuff. And she said, he has set himself up in Spain. So I don't know what's happened in between and whether he's full, full time left his church in Argentina and doesn't do that anymore. And he has set himself up as a, a person who finds missing people. So she obviously had someone, I didn't pry too much. It was obviously a sensitive matter, but she was worried about whether she should see him to help her find missing people, which does make me trust him even less because I just think either you're an exorcist or you're finding a psychic. Like, which one are you, man? It seems like any way to make the most money uh, possible. So that's the update. On the Edge with Andrew Gold, uh, what's coming up uh, um, the, the next episode or the next couple of episodes? So uh, I've just had, I always have to like look again because I, I forget, you know, it's three, three episodes a week. You just forget, don't you? I mean, it's so hard. We just had one out with Michael Shermer, who's like quite a famous, uh, you know, talks about conspiracy theories and why we believe in stuff. And he's interesting because, he, you know, he doesn't discount conspiracies. He says they do happen. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, sometimes they don't and, and how, we, how we find out which one's which. And then there's a guy called Danny Robbins who's coming up um, and he... Uh, does a lot about ghosts. So he's a really interesting guy. He's got podcasts and uh, a play and all sorts of things. And I think he is a believer himself. And then next week there is uh, someone called Annie Ikba, who 
is talking about child sacrifice because she went to Africa and found all sorts of witch doctors and things who um, who, who sacrificed children. So that's quite a harrowing one. But that's the sort of uh, thread of what's coming up in the next week or so. Andrew, great pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure being here. On the Edge with Andrew Gold, available wherever you get your podcasts and uh, also on YouTube, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.